Over the years, I've received the same kind of call numerous times. A loved one has died. Would I please call the family or come to the home or to the hospital? The circumstances are different each time, but the questions are the same. One time it was a young man who had taken drugs and died earlier that evening. Another time it was a car accident that claimed the life of the driver and the passenger. Several times it's been a simple medical procedure that turned bad. A couple of times it was about someone who had taken their own life. I try to think about what I'm going to say before I talk with the family who are usually in a state of shock or confusion. Sooner or later, though, someone takes me aside and through their tears asks me the question that I know is coming, and the question is why. Why did God let this happen? I often come away from that experience thinking that I have no answer to that question that's going to satisfy this grieving family in that stressful moment. I think it's true for most of us when we look at the questions of life and death. Even the most dedicated believer sometimes cries out, why God? Why me? Why now? Why this? The question of why rings across the centuries and through every generation, and all of us ask it sooner or later. If you haven't yet, you probably will. It's a question that does not have an easy answer. In fact, even the most dedicated believers have sometimes wondered about the ways of God. And if Job in the Old Testament never got a complete answer, what can we expect? As I read the Bible, I don't think there is one single answer. We get one kind of answer in the book of Genesis, another kind of answer in the Old Testament book of Job, still other answers in the book of Psalms. Ecclesiastes takes yet another approach, and the Gospels present us with a Christ whose very coming alters the way we think about life. Finally, the book of Revelation shows us a picture of our Lord's ultimate victory and final defeat of evil. I don't mean to suggest that these, are, there, uh, that there are various perspect these various perspectives contradict each other. It's just that the problem of human suffering is so vast that we need many different ways to think about it. That's where the Old Testament book of Habakkuk comes in. In this series, we're going to dig deep into this little book written just before the world caved in for the people of Judah. And if you don't know where to find Habakkuk, look in the minor prophets of the Old Testament, or just look in the table of contents. That's probably easier. Habakkuk is squeezed between Nahum and Zephaniah, two other books we rarely read, but come near the end of the Old Testament. But let's back up for a second. There are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament divided between the major prophets, five books, and the minor prophets, 12 books. They're not called major and minor because of their respective importance, but because of their size. In one of my Bibles, the five major prophets take up about three times as many pages as the 12 minor prophets. So we're talking about short books here. Habakkuk contains 56 verses spread over three chapters. And though he is a minor prophet, there is nothing minor about his message. He's writing about a topic that we all think about eventually. Habakkuk is unlike the other prophetic books, major or minor, in that it records a dialogue between one man and God. By contrast, Isaiah contains a message from God. 
Habakkuk records a conversation with God. And if you ever felt like you had a few questions for God, this is the book for you. Howard Hendricks called Habakkuk the man with a question mark for a brain. There's a lot of back, uh, background that we uh, need to understand about this book. So let me give you a synopsis. The year is 605 BC, or thereabouts. We can't be sure of the precise year, but that's a pretty good guess. After the good king Josiah died in 609 BC, the nation of Judah plunged headlong back into a cesspool of corruption and uh, idolatry and immorality that had plagued it for so many generations. This time the people seemed hell-bent on their own destruction. And instead of edging toward the cliff, they seemed determined to plunge over the cliff going full speed as it was if the nation had a death wish and no use for God at all. So enter the prophet Habakkuk. About the man, we know almost nothing. We can assume that he was about 30 years old at the time, but that's just a guess. We know that he was a contemporary of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and would have been about 10 or 15 years older than Daniel. And when he saw the moral, terrible moral decline of Judah, he was praying for God to do something. And in his mind, no doubt, thought that God would raise up another good king who would lead God's people in the right direction. Little did he know that God's answer would come by way of a hated group of people called the Babylonians. As we consider the situation behind the book, I'm reminded of the famous words of Billy Graham uttered when he was a young preacher when he said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if those words were true 60-some years ago, how much truer must they be today? See, Habakkuk lived in very confusing times, and I think we do as well. That's why we all need a strong faith in uncertain times. We need to sit with this book of Habakkuk for a while so we, uh, so we can be strong in our own faith when trouble enters our life. Habakkuk wrote out of his argument with God in three short chapters. And here's a simple outline. Chapter 1, faith tested. Chapter 2, faith taught. And chapter 3, faith triumphant. We can describe his personal journey in this way. Chapter 1, argument. Chapter 2, answer. Chapter 3, acceptance. Habakkuk is a very modern book. There's a lot of asking, there's a lot of waiting, there's a lot of praying in this book. And along the way, Habakkuk experiences a total change. In this book, he moves from fear to faith, from burden to blessing, from perplexity to praise, from confusion to confidence, from worry to worship. He begins with a question mark, and this book ends with an exclamation point. In many ways, it's a very modern book in that it raises the questions that we all wrestle with today. I know a pastor who received this note from a young man troubled by many problems in his congregation. After describing his particular issues, this young man framed the question this way. He said, Pastor, I am exhausted with life, and I would kill myself if it weren't for the fact that I'm a coward, and I don't have the guts to carry it out. I see therapists and psychiatrists, but they can't help. They stuff me with drugs and they send me on my way. 
Why is God silent in my life? Why does he not act? Where is my Lord? We've all been there, haven't we? Even if we wouldn't put it in exactly the same words. When we're up against problems for which there seems to be no human solution, we look to heaven and we cry, God, why don't you do something about this? So as the book of opens, Habakkuk is confused, and he's agitated, and three issues are haunting him. First issue that troubles him is an issue of unanswered prayer. In verse 2, we read, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Now think about things going on in the world today. There's warfare, there's murder, there's corruption, there's uh, perversion of all kinds. There's looting and robbery and extortion, and the list could go on and on. There's some, these same things were happening in Habakkuk's day. And as he surveys the evil that he sees on every hand, he cries out to God, how long, God, are you going to let this stuff go on? Sooner or later, we all wonder about God's seeming inactivity. Where is God when we need him? I think today of a godly mother who's praying for her wayward son. He was raised in the church, he went to Sunday school, he knows the Bible, but when he left home, he left all that behind. And for many years his mother has been praying for them, but to this day he remains a prodigal son. I think about a wife who's praying for her husband who left her after 23 years of marriage for a younger woman. He seems utterly unreachable and the marriage heads swiftly toward divorce. I think about a young man who sincerely prays fervently for deliverance from an overpowering temptation, but the struggle never seems to end. The more he prays, the worse the temptation becomes. And so we're, we cry out with the psalmist, O oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? See, in today's world, I think about uh, 276 Nigerian schoolgirls who were kidnapped by the Muslim terrorist organization Boko Haram back in April of 2016. Most of the girls were Christian, but a few were Muslim. Their crime? They wanted an education, something these radical Muslims didn't want for the women. And for a while we saw the hashtag, bring back our girls. For a while we got concerned as as believers around the world and millions of Christians were praying for these young girls. In the days that followed, a few of the kidnapped girls escaped. Some were released recently in exchange for five terrorist leaders. Some were likely sold as child brides and forced into sex slavery. Their kidnappers released videos boasting of what they did. And I think in today's world, with stories like this, we're entitled to ask, Lord, where are you? Why don't you do something about this? The second issue that troubles Habakkuk is uncontrolled perversity. Look at verses 3 and 4. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. You see, when lawlessness prevails, no one is safe. 
I think about the number of people who are shot and killed in the city of Chicago in a given week. But that isn't just Chicago's problem. This headline appeared in USA Today some time back, said police chief and rabbi among 71 nabbed in child porn bust. Here's the lead sentence of that story. Two police officers, a rabbi, a registered nurse, a nanny and a boy scout leader are among 70 men and one woman arrested on charges of trading child pornography in what federal officials say is one of the largest ever roundups in the New York City area. And the article contained this disturbing detail. It said this, the expansion of the dark web where pedophiles hide using websites that encrypt their computers identifying information has fueled an explosion of child pornography. The dark web refers to the vast underground internet that can't be accessed through normal search engines like Google. So the dark web is said to be many times larger than the internet that we know and use every day. And pornographers and drug traffickers and violent criminals and terrorists of every variety use the dark web to hide their evil deeds. In this case, the police were able to crack this case because they were able to penetrate a part of the dark web. See, technology is good when it's used for good purposes, but when it's put in the hands of evil people, technology can often unleash uncontrolled perversity in the world. And it was that uncontrolled perversity in his world that greatly troubled Habakkuk. The third issue that troubled him was an unexpected answer. Habakkuk faces this third issue when God gives him an answer that he just doesn't expect. Look at verse 5. Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. Now, take those, take, taken by itself, those words might lead us to think that God was going to send a mighty spiritual awakening to Judah, a revival that would rid the nation of idolatry and bring them back to God. And sometimes I've heard preachers use that verse as a basis for praying for spiritual renewal in our day. And while I certainly think that we ought to be praying for spiritual renewal, this is not what that verse is about. God is going to send something to these people, but it's not revival. Look at verse 6. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people, and they will march across the world and conquer other lands. Nothing that God could have said surprised Habakkuk more than those words. He knew about the Babylonians. Everybody knew about the Babylonians. They were the most hated and the most feared nation on the planet. And under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, their armies plundered the nations around them. No one could stand against them. No one could defeat them. They were vicious. They were unrelenting in their appetite for destruction. If they wanted a city, they took a city. If they wanted a province, they took a province. If they wanted a nation, they took the nation. They were, it's hard for us to understand how the Jews felt about these Babylonians. They swept across the ancient Near East with a cruelty that was previously unknown. And if a conquered city was considered to be resisting their captivity and servanthood to the empire, they just might put a whole pile of skulls in the city plaza as a warning not to rebel against them. They poked out the eyes of the conquered kings and they marched rulers off in chains, sometimes with giant hooks in their jaw. These were nasty people and God knew how bad they were. Look at how God describes them in the next few verses, beginning with verse 6. He says, 
They are cruel and violent, notorious for their cruelty, and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their charioteers charge from far away. Like eagles, they swoop down to devour their prey. On they come, all bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert, sweeping captives ahead of them like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and scorn all their fortresses. They simply pile ramps of earth against their walls, and they capture them. They sweep past like the wind and are gone. But here is God's ultimate indictment of them. Look at verse 11. But they are deeply guilty, for their own strength is their God. Now the point is this. These are nasty people, and God knows how bad they are. He's not raising up members of the little sisters of the poor to judge Judah or calling on the Boy Scouts to do that. When God decides to judge his people, he picked the meanest nation on the block to do it for him. We've all heard the phrase, some things have to get worse before they get better. Nothing about this made sense to Habakkuk. It's as if God was saying, I'm going to raise up Al-Qaeda to judge America. Because you don't respect my law, now you're going to live under Sharia law. As shocking as that sounds to us, that's exactly how God's message sounded to Habakkuk. He couldn't believe what he just heard. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Miriam uh, Ibrahim, the 27-year-old medical doctor in the Sudan who was arrested, tried, and convicted of apostasy and adultery. Her crime, supposedly converting from Islam when in fact she had been raised a Christian. She wasn't an apostate because you can't leave a religion you never joined in the first place. They accused her of adultery because she had a child with her husband who was a Christian from Sudan who emigrated to the United States. The adultery was really a charge of having a relationship with her own husband because they didn't recognize her marriage to a Christian. She was sentenced to death by hanging for the apostasy and sentenced to a hundred lashes for the adultery and she was given a chance to stand and recant her faith. And time and time again, the prosecutor badgered her to renounce the name of Jesus. And she refused each time. Finally, she said, I am a Christian, and I will remain a Christian. And a result, as a result of her faithful witness, she was not only kept in jail, but she was put in shackles, and authorities would not even unchain her when she gave birth in prison. Through it all, she steadfastly refused to renounce the name of Jesus. After millions of people around the world begin to protest, she eventually was allowed to be free and leave Sudan with her husband and two children and is now living in the United States. And here's my point in telling you that story. Sometimes, even today, I think a lot of us have the mindset that we're doing just fine without God. But what if God allows some stuff to happen in our life for a purpose? What if these things must happen in order to bring us closer to him? Very often in the Bible, things had to get worse before they got better. Some days I wonder if, if we have reached that point in the Western world and in America. And in my head, I hear the words of a distraught father about his prodigal daughter who was raised in a godly home and just seems bent on going her own way. And through his tears, the father saying, She's got, I guess she's just going to have to hit rock bottom. I guess he, and, uh, that's the only way she's going to learn. And he prays that God will do whatever it takes to open the eyes of her heart so that the light of heaven can flow in again. 
So what if God does allow some things to come into our life for a purpose? I hear many people say that we need a spiritual renewal in America, and I certainly agree with that. I also hear some people say that we're on this brink of a great movement of God, and I don't know if that's true or not. I certainly hope it is, and I pray and I work to that end. But why does it seem at times that we have, as a nation have turned so far away from God's truth? Why the collapsing moral standards? Why have we so quickly accepted or tolerated many things that the generations before us would never have supported? I think the answer is clear. As a nation, there are many people who don't even believe in God, and there are others who believe that we don't need God. We're doing just fine without him, or so we think. I remember how on the Sunday after September 11, 2001, and some of you may remember that, churches like ours all across America were packed with people, packed. Millions of Americans responded to the terrorist attacks by coming to a house of worship, but within a few short weeks, the post-crisis attendance bump disappeared entirely. Very quickly, things returned to more or less normal. And I can tell you what happened we turned toward God for a moment, but we didn't turn to him. There's a big difference. We turned in his direction, but we did not repent of our sins. Turning toward God is good, but it never lasts. Only turning to God can change an individual heart or a nation. I think every one of us hearing this message this morning is in one of four places. Either you've experienced some very confusing times in your life, or maybe you're just coming out of some of those very difficult, confusing times in your life. Or maybe um, you're in that moment right now, a very difficult place in your life. Or maybe you're about to go into a confusing time and you just don't know it yet. And I'm hoping that you'll take this series on Habakkuk and put it in your back pocket and you'll keep it close to you so that when you need it, you'll be reminded of some of the important lessons that we're going to be uh, sharing over the next few weeks. But I want to wrap up things this morning with three important insights. The first one is this. In this life, we only see part of the picture. When it comes to understanding what God is doing in the world, we are like an ant on a Rembrandt painting. We're crawling across the dark brown, and we think that all of life is dark brown. And then we hit the green and think, oh, this is better. It's all green. But then comes the dark blue, and then the splash of yellow, and the streak of red, and another patch of brown. And on we travel from one color to another, never realizing that God is actually painting a masterpiece in our lives using all the colors of the palette. And one day we will discover that every color had its place, had its reason. Nothing was wasted or out of place. Just as there's a time and a season for every, uh, everything, there is a color for every stage of life's journey. And when the painting is finished, we will discover that we are part of God's masterpiece and have been from the very beginning. We only see part of the picture. Secondly, God isn't limited to what we think he ought to do. We continually make the mistake of thinking that God's plans and ours are the same plans. They aren't. Some wise person said it this way, write your plans in pencil and give God the eraser. Here's another way to say it. If your God always does what you want, he's probably not the God of the Bible. God will be no one's servant. 
God is God, and he does what he pleases. And then thirdly, we need a bigger view of God. Habakkuk got his mind messed up when he began to think what God should do. In fact, chapter 1 shows us that he was wrong twice. First, he thought he was, God was ignoring Judah's sin. And second, he couldn't believe that God would use the Babylonians to judge his people. So we need a bigger God than just our puny ideas. We need a God who will always continually surprise us. How big is your God today? You better figure that out before hard times come to your life. Here's one final thought about how to face confusing times. There's a little saying that, came from, that comes from a former TV series called Friday Night Light. Some of you may remember it. It's about a high school football team in West Texas. And in the series, the coach has his players repeat three phrases. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And I want to give you a new version that sums up how I think we can face confusing times in our life. And I want you to stop and just say it out loud with me right now. Clear eyes. Say it with me. Clear eyes. Full heart. No fear. God is good. You might want to write that down. Put it where you can see it this week. It's a great reminder that our confusion cannot cancel God's goodness. Our confusion cannot cancel God's goodness, even when life makes no sense. I hope that you will be reading this little book. Uh, that you'll go home today and over the next couple of weeks be reading. It's just three chapters if you read it, uh, if you have to read it all several times. But do a little study on this chapter. It'll make this series make a lot more sense to you. But it's a short book, 56 verses. And, uh, and, and, and I think you'll really get, begin to get a picture of the powerful message that's in this uh, tiny book. Let's pray together. Father, as we go through this story of a man who wrestled with you, we're glad you included it in your book so that we would know how to be honest with you. Thank you that you listen to us in our complaints. You don't ever turn away from us. So open, continue to open your word to us so that our vision of who you are might continue to grow because we need a big God and we've got one. And we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.